Please take your seats, everyone. Wonderful to see you here at the five o'clock service. And um, we are together looking at a series about after or beyond death. What happens after we die? And um, we've we got some good weeks coming up um, after today. Today I'm going to be speaking on Will all be saved in the end? Will all be saved in the end? That's my topic today. The next week, I'm going to be looking at the doctrine or the false doctrine of annihilation. In other words, uh, will, will those that don't believe simply cease to exist? And will hell last forever and ever and ever? Or will that be a limited period and even hell will stop? That'll be next week. The week after that, we're going to look at life in the millennium. Do you know when the believers are raised from the dead and Jesus returns, we're going to rule and reign with him on earth for a thousand years in our resurrected bodies. Sounds quite weird, but I'm going to show you a little bit about what life will be like for us believers during the millennium. It's going to be um, an, an amazing time. And then uh, we have Robert Slairdon will be coming later in November to finish off this series. I'll be speaking on heaven, and then he'll be coming in the last uh, week of, weekend of November. He's doing the revival service, but he's also going to be doing the five o'clock service. It's a wonderful way to end this series, uh, Beyond Death, because he, as an eight-year-old boy, was taken up into the heavens. Do you know that? He had an experience as an eight-year-old bo boy. God took him into heaven, and he experienced the heaven. He's written a book called it, on it called I Saw Heaven, and he's going to share his personal experience. Of course, even personal experiences are all subject to the truth of the Word of God. But, you know, God sometimes gives people experiences. Paul himself was caught up into different heaven, heavenly realms, gives us these experiences to encourage us. So we've got a lot of good things to come um, in this series uh, to come. Now, today, I am looking at the topic of beyond death. Is everyone saved in the end? One of the most malicious doctrines and teachings in the church today is the doctrine that no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, in the end, you will be saved. Everybody be saved. If you're a Christian, you're going to be saved, obviously. If you're a Buddhist, you're going to be saved. If you're a Muslim, you're going to be saved. If you're an atheist, you're going to be saved. If you're a racist, you're going to be saved. If, uh, if you're Adolf Hitler, you're going to be saved. If you're Mother Teresa, you're going to be saved. In the end, everybody will be saved because the doctrine teaches this, love wins in the end. The idea is that God's love will conquer everyone. And of course, this idea mean, often brings with it thoughts that there'll be more chances to receive Jesus after you die. So I want to have a look at this. This, is, this teaching, this false teaching, is normally known as universalism because it teaches that universally every single human being, as I said, no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done, no, no matter anything, will in the end be saved, that the love of God will, 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 will make sure that that happens. Now, we're going to go into some of the scriptures, not all of them, but we're going to go into some of the scriptures that universalists try to show to say 
that in the end, everyone will be saved. But I'd like to make a few comments in the way that universalists uh, deal with the scriptures. You can, you can often find that when a universalist points you to a scripture and says, you see, everybody in the end, everybody's going to be saved in the end. Normally, they're taking a scripture right out of context. When they pluck it out of context, it can seem to say that. But if you put it back into context, usually if you read a little bit back and a little bit forward, you'll realize that that was not what the author was teaching. I've often found that in teaching that is error, this is often what they do. They take proof texts. You know what a proof text is? I simply quote a scripture to you, and, uh, and I don't tell you where it's from, or I don't, we don't look at the paragraphs beforehand. You know, for example, you know, every knee shall bow and every voice proclaim that Jesus is Lord. You see, every knee will bow, every voice proclaim that Jesus is Lord, everyone's going to get saved. And you go, oh, well, that, that, that sounds... But if you actually put that proof text, that scripture, back, as we will do, into the letter it was written, look at the person who wrote the letter, read a little bit back, read a little bit forward, you'll see that that wasn't the intention of the author at all. So they often take verses right out of context, ignore other verses in the, in the same epistle or in the New Testament, and then just give you that as if it was a whole truth. One of the other things that the universalists do is they often argue from philosophy rather than revelation. I don't know about you, but in the end, all that we can really know about God is in the Word of God, and it's revelation. And whether you agree or not agree, whether you like or don't like, do you believe in the Word of God or not? My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Now, if His ways are not our ways, that means that we're going to come into contact with truths in the Bible that we find difficult. But God is God. And there's sometimes when you read doctrines and teachings in the Bible that we might find difficult or hard to take, in the end, we've just got to trust God. He's bigger than us. He can see things that we don't see, understand things that we see through a glass darkly. But God sees everything. So sometimes you just have to trust God and believe that in the end, as the Bible says, will the, the God of the earth will do right. And so we see text taken out of context and we see arguments from philosophy rather than the Word of God. Let me start with a scripture that clearly shows that not everybody will be saved in the end. Revelation 14, verse 9. Revelation verse, chapter 14, verse 9, following. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and the image and who receive the mark of his name. So even in this scripture, we see that there are a certain class of human beings that will not be saved, but in fact will suffer judgment and will suffer 
the judgment of the devil, they will be in hell and they will be thrown into the lake of the, fi of the fire. They are tormented, they are conscious, and they are drinking of the wrath of God. What is this talking about? Do you know, all of the wrath of God was poured out on his son, Jesus, on the cross. Do you know that? Jesus took all God's wrath. He paid for God's wrath for, your, for the sins of past, sins of present, and sins of future. Jesus paid for the sins of the world, correct? But in order to receive forgiveness of sins, you have to believe. Jesus says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believes not shall be damned. So in order to receive God's grace, you must believe in God's grace. You must receive the gift of God's grace. If you do not receive the gift of God's grace, if you do not believe, the Bible is clear that God's grace does not atone for you. Faith causes you to receive the grace of God. If you do not believe the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again for your sins and that he is Lord, then you will not receive the blessings of forgiveness, but instead you will pay for your own sins. I don't know about you, I'm glad Jesus paid for my sins. And if Jesus is offering me and saying, Bruce, I paid for your sins, and if you believe me, you'll be free from your sins, I'm going to believe him. But he also says, I paid for your sins, but if you don't believe that I paid for, for your sins, then you shall pay for your sins. And that payment will be forever and ever in hell. Now, I think that a lot of the universalists are a bit like modern-day Hananias. You say, well, what's a Hananiah? Well, in Jer Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 15, I won't go to it, but it's worth it. We find that Hananiah was going around Israel telling them that everything was going to be all right. In fact, we will go to it. Jeremiah chapter 28. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 15. Well, verse 12. Now, when the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you've made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they shall serve him, and I have given them the beasts of the field also. Then prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you've taught the rebellion against the Lord. Hananiah was giving false comfort and false hope. You know, can you imagine being in a situation where people are telling you that it's all going to be right in the end, and it isn't? That they're telling you that everything's fine, you don't have to worry about it. In the end, everybody's going to be saved. And then one day, you find out that that's not true. How would you feel about that? It'd be too late, wouldn't it? It reminds me of a minister many years ago that, that I knew. And uh, he was doing uh, a program in ITV or BBC, one of the television channels. And uh, they played a trick on him. 
and they brought him into this room, and on this table was all these types of luxury goods, bottles and this and that and the other, all these luxury things laid out. And the man said to him before the program, he said, you can have whatever you want now, and, and feel free to take whatever you want home. This is our hospitality. And he thought, really? Are you, are you sure that's all right? Are you sure you're telling me the truth? He said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Go ahead, no, no one will mind. And then what he did is he took some things, put them in a bag, and they secretly filmed him. And then when he went, when he went away, they filmed him taking the bags of all these goodies, and then they put it in the newspapers and accused him of stealing. Yeah, it was a dirty trick to play, wasn't it? How do you think that that minister felt about the person who had actually disappeared? Who told him it was going to be all right? There was no penalty. Go ahead. It's all fine. He believed the guy. He just simply took it on trust. And then in the end, they came and said, why have you stolen these goods? We've got the evidence. Wait a second. I was told that it was all right. It was too late, wasn't it? That's why we need to look at these things in scriptures very carefully. Because we might like in our own human frailty the idea that everybody will in the end go to heaven. I quite like the idea. If, if it was left to my own devices, my own, my own nature, I, I love the idea that everybody in the end will end up in heaven. Everybody. But that is not what I see in Scripture. And so I believe we need to be careful of modern-day Hananias, telling everybody, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. Everybody's going to end up in heaven in the end. God's going to do it all. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And when God's gonna, and one day when we see the great judgment day of day, God's going to say, I thought I made it plain. Where their worm doesn't die. And the fire isn't, I thought I made it plain. I even put most of the teaching of hell and punishment in the mouth of my own son. Jesus said, truly, truly, you know, Jesus, when he spoke about heaven, we looked at this last week, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. Well, no one's got any problems with that. Isn't it nice to know? If it's not so, he wouldn't have told us. There's a place prepared for all that believe in heaven. Well, how much the other side? Why would Jesus tell us about a place of gnashing of teeth, of darkness, of, uh, uh, of eternal punishment? Why would he give us parables like Lazarus and the rich man? Why would he tell us about the gnashing of teeth? Why would he speak about all these things if he didn't mean to warn us? You know, warnings are very healthy. Warnings are very healthy. healthy. Imagine if all the warning signposts were taken away. All the hazard signposts were taken away. You'd start touching things with electric currents, wouldn't you? You'd end up driving your car off a cliff or something like that. Warnings might be a little bit scary, but they're there to protect you. Jesus' warnings and the New Testament warnings about a real place called hell are there to help us. They are warnings of grace. They're actually saying, look, I need you to know how serious it is. It does matter if you die in your sins. It does matter. And in the secular world today, nobody thinks it matters at all if you die in your sins. In fact, many people think, automatically think that everybody will go to heaven. You know, because, you know, he was a nice man after all. He was good to his kids. Well, it's not about how good or bad you are. It's about the fact that Jesus offers you 
forgiveness of sins if you believe in him. And so let's have a look at some of these uh, passages. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, one of the most famous passages that are used to, by universalists to say that um, everybody in the end will go to heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, following. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every, uh, sorry, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, if I just picked that right out and gave it to you, I could make that sound like everybody in the end is going to give their lives to the Lord. And even those that may end up in hell or not go immediately to heaven will one day voluntarily bow their knee and recognize that Jesus is Lord. And, and that's what universalists teach. They say that this is talking about a time, that in the end, every human being, no matter who they are, no matter what they did in their life on earth, what they believed, in the end, they will come to a recognition by the grace and love of God. They'll come to a recognition after death that Jesus is who he is, and they will give their lives to Jesus. Voluntary. They will bow their knee. They will be saved. So when we make altar calls or bring someone to the Lord, they recognize who Jesus is, don't they? And they give their lives to the Lord. Well, this teaching is, is that after death, People will not, only be give, well, will not only be given an opportunity, but they will take that opportunity. And they will give their lives voluntarily to the Lord. In fact, some even misinterpret um, the verse, the, the, the Greek word here, talking about bowing of the knee. And they, they, they take one uh, bad example in a dictionary saying that to bow your knee is always to bow voluntarily. Well, that's true. You can voluntarily bow your knee, can't you? But actually, this scripture is not talking about the voluntary bowing of a knee. This is actually referring to the bowing of the knee of those brought in, of enemies brought into subjection by a king. If you look at ancient times, I mean, the way that defeated kings were treated was quite frightening. No wonder they didn't want to get caught. You look at the Roman times and before that, the Romans, for example, uh, would parade the kings that they had beaten in the streets, parade them. And in fact, many times what, you would, what they would do is the, the, uh, the conquering general would be on a special chariot and the, uh, the king would be, his knee would be bowed down onto the earth and the conqueror would place his foot on his head as the crowds cheered. Others would be, before, would be brought before a king. And before the king, the conquered, the other conquered king would have to bow his knee. Now, if that king could get his army back, he would fight again. But this is a place where he has to recognize, even though he doesn't like the king or in his heart have allegiance to the king, he has to recognize that this king is Lord and he can no longer resist. This is the context and the description of the passage that is, be, is, is being given. Jesus has humbled himself. 
he has become a servant in the passages before, but now he's been exalted as a great king. And those that crucified him, those that rejected him, he will now be king over when he returns. Also, if you look at the other, other passages in Philippians, this verse couldn't possibly mean that everybody's going to be saved, that after death, people will come to Jesus, get born again after death. Because let's have a look at some of the other passages in the same letter that Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of destruction, but to you salvation and that from God. So in verse 28, you have a clear separation of two types of people. You have those that have believed the gospel and are being saved, but then you have those that are opposing the gospel who are going to be destroyed. They're going to be punished. So right there, uh, he's not saying everybody's going to get saved. He's saying, look, there are saved and there are those that do not believe that aren't going to be saved. Also come with me to Philippians chapter 3 and verse um, 18 and 19 following. Philippians 3, 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and tell you even now weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be confirmed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. And you see in that passage, there's two clear, clear categories of people, isn't there? There is those who are enemies of the cross. And why is Paul weeping? Because he knows what's going to happen to an enemy of the cross that dies an enemy of the cross. He says, their end is destruction, okay? Their end. So in the end, not partly destruction and then saved, their end. In other words, their final state, where they will end up in, is a place of destruction. That's who they are. That's their end. It's not whose end is their destruction. Oops, sorry, that's not quite the end. Then they'll bow their knee willingly to the Lord and get saved uh, after they die. It's clearly that there's two categories of, of people that, that he is talking about. Also, the passage that, we, that is one of their favorites, that every knee will bow, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Isaiah 45, verse 23. And many universalists look at the context of Isaiah 45, verse 23, and they say, you see, this is all about everybody being saved in the end. I mean, look at Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other I've sworn myself I shall, uh, and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. So there you see, one day all the ends of the earth are going to be saved. But that's not correct, is it? This is an invitation, isn't it? It's a gospel invitation. 
It's, look to me, and you will be saved. But what if you don't look to God? And Isaiah, the same Isaiah who wrote this passage, look at Isaiah 66, verse 23. Again, you have to see everything in context. Isaiah 66 and verse 23. Echoes of, well, not echoes, but foreshadowing Jesus' words. I think I've got my... Oh, yeah, sorry, not 23, 24, excuse me. And they shall go forth and look, the last verse in Isaiah. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Do you remember that echo last week when I taught an introduction to hell? And uh, I was doing that by speaking about Gehenna. I'll be speaking about some of the other words for hell next week when we, we look at is hell forever or, or, or only for a part and then people will be destroyed. But look at this. Jesus, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Remember we looked at Gehenna and we said that that was the rubbish stump of Jerusalem where everything that was of no value anymore, things that had perished, you know, something that is, if a washer perishes, it's not that it doesn't exist anymore, does it? It's just not for, fit for you. use. If a tire perishes, it's not that it doesn't exist anymore, it's just not fit for use. So when someone dies in their sins, they were designed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but they chose not to. They chose not to believe in Him. Well, they're not fit for use. They're like a tire or a washer, not fit for purpose. And what, what do you do with something that's not fit for purpose? You throw it on the rubbish dump. Jesus was shockingly direct about this. And in that rubbish dump of Gehenna, there was two types of destruction. Organic um, rubbish was eaten by maggots and worms. You know what I'm talking about? I gave the illustration of the time when I put some chicken in our bin, and I didn't wrap it up, and it was a hot summer day. I just threw it in, raw chicken. And then a few days later, my wife said, what's that smell? It was full of maggots. So there was worms dealing with organic but also there was a constant fire burning the rubbish there. And Jesus was saying that hell or Gehenna, it, the fire never ends. Their fire is never quenched and their worm does not die. Remember the earlier sessions, and of course these are all on the website, the media, so you can go back to them. I said that we will be, when we're raised from the dead, our, our immortal spirits will be closed with our Immortal bodies. Which part of you is mortal right now? Your body. Your body is mortal. And should Jesus tarry long enough, not come, when you die, your mortal body will decay. True? It's like a seed being planted. But your spirit is already immortal. And that's why Jesus understood that when you die, your spirit exists. It's just your spirit is separated from your body. That's why for the believer, there's no fear of death. Because death has lost its sting. Paul said, it's better for me to be with the Lord than with you. Because absent from the body is to be with the Lord. I know it's difficult sometimes 
for you to believe because we're living in a, in a fallen world. But the moment you die, the moment you die, you don't cease consciousness. In fact, you become more conscious because you might be dying and very frail and losing your mind, mightn't you? And not really aware of what's going on in those final moments. But I tell you what, the moment that you die, your spirit is separated from your body and your spirit is as clearly conscious of what's going on as ever before. And at that moment, you will be heralded in to heaven with Jesus because of your immortal spirit. But your body will decay. But Jesus says in the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, he talks about that your body is sown mortal, but it will be raised immortal. Your immortal spirit's going to be clothed with a more, an immortal body. You'll, you'll never, you'll live and, 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 and forever and ever physically and spiritually. But the same thing will eventually happen to the unbeliever who also has an immortal spirit. But the moment that they die, they will be separated from their body, but they won't go to be with the Lord. They'll go to Gehenna that I was talking about last week. They'll go to hell. But even them as a spirit will not remain without their body forever and ever because there is a second re resurrection, the Bible tells us at the end of Revelation. The resurrection of the great white throne. And at that point, the spirits of the damned that rejected the gospel will be rejoined with an immortal body. You know, sometimes the word they use in the Greek for immortal is asbestos because it can't be destroyed by fire. And uh, they will be clothed in an immortal body, because you are body, soul, and spirit. And that body and spirit will be with the devil and the beast and the prophet, according to Revelations, be thrown into the lake of fire with hell, where they will be tormented forever and ever and ever. Um, and so... We see here that Isaiah is not speaking about this. I, I don't think I need to go too much more into detail except to say this. Romans chapter 14 and 11 is the other place where this every knee shall bow and every tongue confess is found. Romans 14, 11. And even there, what Paul is doing is he's saying to Christians, don't judge one another. Don't judge one another because the Beamer judgment seat, remember I taught on the Beamer judgment seat earlier, the judgment of believers is different to the judgment of unbelievers. We've already passed from death to life. We've already been pronounced not guilty in Christ. But there will be a judgment for our works, for our rewards. Well, this is saying don't judge your, you better be careful how you judge one another because one day there's going to be a judgment seat. And then he quotes, for every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. What Paul is saying is, God is going to judge everything. Everything will be brought into subjection to his lordship. So there, the passage is used in judgment. Bringing people under judgment. Not, and something to be concerned about. Not something that's going to save everybody um, in the end. Now, another scripture that is um, used is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. I can't go through everything, but I can just give you, my intention is just to give you a sample of how we can deal with these passages, because when you troll the internet, it's full of this universalist teaching. 
plucking scriptures out of context and using strong philosophical earthly reasoning. In other and I'll come to that later, earthly reasoning, you know. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 is used. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And they would say, well, what part of all don't you understand? All means all. So we all as human beings died in Adam, but in Christ, we were all going to be made alive. And that scripture by itself sounds pretty promising, doesn't it? Well, we just need to keep reading. Like I said, if a scripture sounds a bit strange to you, either read backwards or read forwards, and you usually see it doesn't mean what the errant teaching says that it means. It says in verse 23, straight after, <laughs> that each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So if I just throw that verse at you, it sounds pretty powerful. How would you argue with that verse? But if I read the next verse, you suddenly see that when Paul is talking about, he's talking about all in Christ, all believers. And be very careful when people start throwing alls at you. Because often the Bible uses all saying the majority. So it talks about um, things like, and all the people in Galilee went after John. Well, not all of them did, but many of them did. So sometimes, I mean, Paul speaks about the gospel has gone into all the world. What? Even Yorkshire, Paul? It hasn't gone into all the world, but what he means is it's out there in all the world, the known world. It doesn't mean every... So you have to be careful what all means. Does it mean all in Christ? Does it mean all humanity? Is it a generalization that they all went out to see Jesus, or every single person? Or is it talking about a whole group or a majority of people that are coming? Staying in Corinthians, just, sorry, 1 Corinthians, just come with me to 16 verse 22. If Paul was teaching that everybody in the end will be saved, why would he write this? Tell you what, you'll never hear a universalist speak these words. And Paul was the author of the doctrine of grace by the Holy Spirit, so much in the epistles, very much one of the authors. And he says this, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ... Let him be accursed. So those that don't love the Lord are not going to be blessed. They're actually under a curse. Next, I'm going to do a few more scriptures and move up to something a bit different. Next, a big one that they use. 1 Timothy 2.4. Or 3. From three. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so, in other words, this is what they say. He desires all men to be saved. And, it, and does, God get what he gets, does God get what he wants? Well done for not replying. because Does God get what he wants? And, and the idea is this. And this is one of the philosophical... Well, God is all-powerful. So if God wants everybody to be saved, and he is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, then surely in the end, all people 
will be saved. Well, you have to recognize that God doesn't always get his desires at, at one level, okay? I mean, even in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, I can give you an example of how you can do, you, we, we can look at this. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 3. So this is right. Just give me one moment. I'm finding it difficult to find my scriptures today. All right, I can't find it. But the passage is... is um, the passage that's saying it's God's will for people to have purity in sexuality. It's his will in Christ that Christians have purity in sexuality. And I've written the, the thing down wrong. But the question is this, is that it's God's will that Christians live sexually pure. Do all Christians live sexually pure? You don't know what to say. No, they don't. They don't. So God's will is that we all live pure. It's his will. And I can't find the verse that shows you that it's his will somewhere in 1 Timothy. But it's his will. But he doesn't get his will. Why? Because we choose not to. And so on one level, it is God's will that everybody gets saved. It's his invitation. But we know that it doesn't take place. It's his desire. It's his moral will. It's his values. And so... That does not mean that everything that God wills, his desires, take place. There's many things that God desires in our own lives that he desires that don't actually take place. And so we can't just take that. Oh, you've got it. 1 Thessalonians, that's right, 4.3. Thank you. Yeah, it looked like t my, my handwriting. 1 Thessalonians, seen as I was struggling to find it, let's read it. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God, but it doesn't mean that everybody does abstain, all right? So God wills that all will be saved. Yes, he does. He desires all will be saved. He desires you're sanctified. He desires we live free from immorality. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what he desires always takes place. Because unfortunately, humans also are responsible for their actions and they can be disobedient to the gospel and disobedient to, to God's, God's will. Now, all of this, I'm going to take... We've done some scriptures, and I don't want it to get too scripture after scripture after scripture. I just want to give you a few illustrations. And so when you hear other scriptures, you can say to yourself, you know what, I bet if I read a bit further forward, sorry, a bit before or a bit after, or learn a bit more, this will be taken out of context. I'm not going to be too shaken, all right? But this all, the universalism, all rests on the fact that there must be at least a second chance after death. Some people teach there's more than second chances. There's as many chances as it takes before you receive Jesus as your Lord after death. So the idea is, is that if someone dies in their sins, they've rejected the gospel, then they will get one, two, three, however many chances in hell after death in order to receive Jesus 
and be saved. But we know that the Bible tells us it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And let me, let's take you to Jesus to see, is there any second chance? Luke chapter 13, 22. Luke chapter 13, 22. The idea is that if the door shut, you can knock on it and it will remain open. It's like Jesus doesn't completely shut the door on everybody who die in their sins. If you knock on the door afterwards, if you change your mind, he'll open up the door in some way and everybody's in the end gonna get, going to get saved. Well, let's read uh, Luke 13, it's verse 22. Um, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching, journeying toward Jerusalem. And then look at the question. The question is about who gets saved in verse 23. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are to be saved? So the question here, isn't it, who's going to be saved? It's a question of who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, correct? Then one said to him, Lord, are there few to be saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where are you from? Then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So you can see clearly there that there is no second chance for these people. That they're knocking on the door asking for a second chance. And Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, the door has been shut. It's too late. It's too late to give your life to Jesus after you die. Last week I spoke about the fact that, you, that the people that end up in hell are not repentant. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. They might be angry, remorseful, but they hate God. People that are in hell who reject the gospel hate God. They don't change their mind in hell. What I said to you, remember I said how God judges people. How does God judge people? He judges people by taking his hands off them. Remember Romans chapter 1 and 2? It says he gave them over three times to their sin. He said, is that what you want? You want sin? Okay, I'm going to stop restraining sin. And I'm going to take my hands off you. And I'm going to let your nature, your, your, your fallen nature, work without restraint. You hear what I'm saying? When, God, God, when, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, do you remember that? Did God climb into his heart and harden it? I'm going to make it hard. No, he didn't do that. He just said, Pharaoh, I'm going to stop restraining you. I'm going to take my hand. I'm going to give you over to who you are and what you want to be. I'm not going to intervene. I'm taking my hands off, off you. And the moment God takes his hand off a person or a nation, 
they begin to harden and they begin to come, become in, a, in, in, in greater and greater ways who they really are as an unregenerate, unborn again person. So somebody that ends up in hell isn't, oh, please forgive me, oh, Lord, somebody's in hell is actually everything that their evil nature becomes. And I said to you last week, but it's worth repeating, I already said, I know many non-Christians that are far nicer people, honorable people, pleasant people, kind people than Christians. Far more, far more. Lo- they can be lovely, nice, kind. They have dignity. They, you hear what I'm saying? We know that. There's, a, there's some amazing people in the world that aren't Christians at all. In fact, put us to shame. But you know what that is? That is the seasoning, restraining blessing of God. You know what I'm saying? When you're in hell, there is no God. There is no truth. There is no light. There is no grace. There is no seasoning of the Holy Spirit. There is no restraint from God. And your unregenerate nature just takes itself and becomes the worst it could possibly be. It becomes totally 100% true to its nature. You may be dignified before you die without Christ, but you will not be dignified in hell. You'll be as bad as the devil because that is your fallen nature. Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to go into it, but I just remind you of it. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. I'll probably go into this next week. It's worth reading, but I haven't got time here today. And you see that there... The rich man is in torment, and um, there is a chasm between them. There's no second chance. And he's even saying, look, can't you send someone to my family? They don't believe either, and I don't want them to experience what, 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 what I'm experiencing. And he's told, look, even if somebody rose from the dead to tell them, they wouldn't believe. That is a great picture of the separation between the believers and the unbelievers, And finally, in the last five minutes, um, I just want to say this, that there's a lot of philosophy behind this, a lot of human reasoning and human thinking. Remember who we are. are We're human beings. We are tiny, tiny little ants compared to the greatness of God. His mind and his understanding is incredible. I mean, you know, you, you, you could pick up a little amoeba you know, a little cell, and say, do you know what, the intellect of an, of an amoeba compared to me, this amoeba can't understand the first thing that I can understand. It's just a tiny amoeba. You're even littler than an amoeba compared to God. And yet we shape him and make him in our image, and yet we say, well, if I was God, I would save everybody. Therefore, God who is more loving than me will also save everybody. And some people say, if I, if I as a human being are so weak in my love, and yet I, if I was God, would save everybody, surely God in his infinite love, love will win. Famous book, one of the, one, one of the most manipulative theological books I've ever read called Love Wins, which is more philosophy than Bible teaching, human philosophy, human-centered thinking, projecting itself on God and making him in their image. But it says love wins. But you see, what is love? Love is always in the context of judgment in the Bible. 
John's gospel says, this is love, that no matter what you've done, who you are, whether you love Jesus or not, you're going to go to heaven in the end, because that's love. It doesn't say that. It says, this is love, that God sent his son to be a propitiation for sin. Do you know what propitiation means? It means to appease the wrath and anger of God against sin. So love always has justice and judgment. Why didn't God just let Jesus off too? No, there is, there is, love must have a corresponding justice. A corresponding justice. So love wins, but justice wins too. We cannot make God in our own image of love. God, in Matthew 25, verse 46, on this I'll finish, and then we'll come back to these things. Again, I'm not trying to go deep into every argument. This is not what this service is about. This is to raise issues. You can go deeper yourself if you're interested in these, in these studies. I'm, not, I'm aware I'm just touching the surface of these things, but they have to be addressed at some level. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into everlasting life. The two words are the same. And it's interesting how people are happy to talk about everlasting life, but they forget that it's always, not always, but when Jesus contrasted with everlasting punishment. The same word is used here for everlasting life as everlasting punishment. There are two sides of one coin. We can't perhaps understand the way God thinks, but we think, but we know that he's righteous. And I haven't even, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give you meat that you can't chew. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I haven't even gone to the strong meat of Romans 9. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Compassion on whom he has compassion. You see, what does God owe mankind? What does God owe mankind? If God owes mankind, forget about Jesus for a moment. What does God owe mankind? He owes mankind justice. Well, he owes justice. God must be just. God owes every human being just. He must be just with every human being. Forget about Jesus' cross for a second. If there was no cross and God gave each one of us justice according to what we deserved, where would we be? Hell. And, and we deserve it. And don't think that eternity in hell is, um, is like, you know, today we look at somebody and they commit murder and they're in for 14 years. And we think, 14 years for taking someone's life? That's not very long. Or somebody steals a loaf of bread from Asda and they get 20 years. We go, that's ridiculous. That's not fair. 20 years for a loaf of bread, correct? And some people say, eternal punishment forever and ever, unceasing, for 70 or 80 years of sin. That's not fair. Well, you obviously don't know how bad sin is to God. The tiniest sin to the holiest of God, holiest of God is worth an infinite punishment. We're in our human sinful minds thinking, well, you know, this, this amount is about right. God is infinite in holiness. 
infinite in holiness. So God, if he gave us all justice, all of us would go to hell. But thank God, he gives grace. Well, he should give everybody grace. Grace is undeserved. He only owes us justice. Grace, God can give to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. It's like if I had a 10-pound note in my pocket, which I don't. And I said, you know what? And I went out into the crowd. I wish I'd, it would have been a good illustration. Someone had got blessed. But anyway, and went out to the crowd here and gave you 10 pounds. And someone said, why didn't you give me that 10 pounds? And I'd say, do I owe you 10 pounds? No. Well, it's my 10 pounds. and give it to whom I want. You hear what I'm saying? So God's grace is greater than God's justice. Well, that's not fair. God has to give grace to everyone. No, he has to give justice to everyone. And everybody who ends up in hell are there because of their own desires, their own hatred of God. No one will end up in hell except for their own fault, okay? But it's not the same in heaven. No one will end up in heaven except by God's grace. That's why we have to get the heart of the Father who doesn't desire anyone to go to hell, although they are going to hell. In their hundreds of thousands, they're going to hell. That's not God's desire, but he's wanting us to call out for his grace to be poured out in a revival. I mean, a revival, you, you can buy my book at the end of the service, I'm finishing now. I'm sorry I've gone on five minutes, but I needed to do this, one more minute. Revival is God's grace, revival. God puts his revival in people's heart. People begin to cry out. Revival is God from the beginning to end. And we could say it's not fair. God, you gave revival to other generations. Why haven't you given revival to us? God's God and he can pour out his grace and his revival whenever he wants. But let's believe him for it. Maybe he's looking. You see, there is a partnership between God's grace and our faith. And so as we close today, we realize that the Bible is very plain that there isn't a second chance after death for people to be saved, that the passages, I've only given you a few that are used, are taken out of context, and the clear passages, remember in the Bible, always go to where it's taught clearest, and then go to other passages that we discuss. And where the Bible teaches clearest, usually out of the mouth of Jesus, it is clear to see that is appointed for mankind to die once and then the judgment, that now in this life is the time to believe. And what we, decisions that we make in this life will affect us eternally. Next week we'll be looking at the doctrine of annihilation, looking at some other terms of, of, of hell, and then we'll be moving away from hell after that week and looking, uh, beginning to look at the millennium, the blessings, and heaven, because we're going to heaven. Although we need to know this to, to plunder hell, to populate heaven, we're going to end this series on the beauties and joys of heaven and being with Jesus. God bless you all.